I want to welcome everyone. Just to uh, recap what we're doing here from a different perspective, we are taking very dense states of mind, <clears throat> very, uh, very uh, conditioned and believed in states that are, if you think of it in terms of like a cotton ball, they're very, it's a very stuffed cotton ball. It's opaque, you can't see any light through it, it just looks very um, uh, concentrated. And we're taking that, <clears throat> and what happens when that comes into consciousness is that there's an overwhelming engagement in that activity and the belief and assumptions associated with those states of minds and a playing out and an acting out from those state of mind and then a reconditioning of the beliefs uh, and the activities for future reference there get stronger, not weaker. <clears throat> so what we have to do is that we take these states and we've taken some very difficult states, not only some of the traditional hindrances that we talk about in terms of aversion and desire and doubt, but also some of the ones that still have a tremendous momentum, though they're not labeled specifically as hindrances, like uh, tonight we're going to talk about shame, we've talked about uh, fear, uh, anger, and uh, other states as well. And so we're going to, and we just start pulling the cotton apart. We start pulling it apart so that light starts showing through. Space. We begin to see an impersonal quality to this momentum of conditioning, this absolute fact that we have taken to be so true and real. We've started to pull it apart. And what we can do is that we have to meet it with an enthusiastic energy. Now that's often troubling because we don't particularly want to see those states of mind and we have been very efficient at hiding from those states of mind for a long period of time. But I was uh, in California this last weekend, I was uh, officiating a wedding for my niece <clears throat> and uh, it was, the wedding was there and uh, it was raining. Now in Seattle, we wouldn't have called it much of a rain. It was a drizzly kind of thing. Many days like what we have here. But to California, there's a lot of contraction. They didn't want to go out there in their beautiful dresses and suits and get all wet. And we didn't have a plan B, so we had to go out there. So we went out there. And I could see everybody going, you know. <laughs> and I said, listen, you know. This weather cannot dampen the spirit of our meeting here. Now, unless we come out of our hiding, unless we show up for this wedding, that contracted energy is going to be what the energy of the beginning of this wedding, beginning of this marriage contains. So, so everybody goes, opens up. <laughs> but our initial response to difficult states is to contract is to be fearful of them, is to be timid. Instead of opening this thing up and meeting it with a new spirit of adventure, of saying, you know, this has to be the first day of my openness to this. If the rest of my life has been, uh, been a kind of a, a fear tactic or a, a hiding from, 
that hiding from has led to a, and I'm beginning to see this more and more, has led to a kind of regression, emotional regression in many of us. And what I mean by that is that we've spent so much of our lives hiding from emotional states of mind that we have very little maturity when they arise. We have very little ability to hold that state or to even understand what that state is. It's because we've never completely observed that state or been willing to even bring our awareness to uh, be present within that state. And so when it arises, as it does again and again, and we are refusing to look at it, we turn away from it, we remain essentially at the chronological age of the maturity of when it was first imparted to us, whatever those assumptions, those reactive patterns were uh, uh, beginning, the conditioning began with in us, that chronological age, probably single digit age, is the age, the emotional age that we meet them now. And when we finally are, have to confront them because we have no other place to hide, we find ourselves like a six-year-old in the middle of them. It's like an alcoholic who is an alcoholic from age 20 to age 40, and then at age 41 sobers up, but whose emotional maturity is age 19 because they have been refusing to look at their lives for those 20 years. Now, that all of us carry that alcohol syndrome within us. And it's time now that we start being honest, being open, looking at these things, feeling them, understanding them, flushing them out, taking that cotton ball and spreading it some so that light can come through. Because they will come out of us. We can pr I can promise you one thing about the universe is that it will navigate its way so that it will bring up that dense cotton ball in you. And uh, it w that's, that's what it's meant to do and that's what it will do. And it keeps doing that and we keep turning away from it. So that we have to develop some emotional intelligence, I think is the word, towards and with these states on an ongoing basis. Now, uh, it's interesting because I walk a, a balance here, as many teachers do, between uh, the knowledge and understanding of emptiness that these states hold, and that they're essentially empty, all these states are essentially empty, that they are only invested and become something through our emotional reactivity to them, our fear of them. That's what makes them into something. And once we divest that fear from them, they fall back into emptiness. But if I start there, uh, it's too um, remote for many of us, too distant. It seems too cold. However, it's often the edge that I like to play because it keeps you serious about this. It doesn't keep you lost in a kind of, of drift of emotional uh, confusion. Now, the other side of the issue is the equation of self-love. Self-love is one that we have to look at these states over and over again look at the difficulty that these states have and have asserted within our lives, bring us a, a state of profound uh, 
a quiet and stability within them, appreciate the fact that we have them by becoming less personally involved within them, and just a general sense of self-affection for the whole range of consciousness that each of us display because we're human beings. If I put too much pressure or too much weight on that area of self-love, we can go adrift. It becomes how I can better myself, how I can improve, how I can be better with this. And, and we, keep, we don't see ourselves, we, see our, we take ourselves to be something we're not, which is an entity, an established and secure entity, and we try to do some brushwork to make the entity better off. And so I don't want to drift too far to the left, and I don't want to keep us too far out to the right. So I have to walk this thing kind of in the vortex, or the vertex, really, of the, of the angle of the, of the triangle, and walk with both of those. So tonight I'm going to spend a little more time on self-love, because I think that's something that we each need, and is a stability factor in us being able to take this, uh, uh, any of these states of mind on directly. These states of mind are very difficult to do or to see emptiness in when we loathe them. If we have a set reactive pattern to a particular area of ourselves, we're never going to see the emptiness in that area. We have to come to a stability and an equanimity, which is a word I don't often use, but a balanced perspective, so that we can begin to ask in, uh, questions and flush out the details of what this particular state of mind is. And so tonight, we're going to look at the state of shame. Uh, and I don't expect many of you will get up and walk out of this one, because I think that it pretty much touches all of us, especially when we have lived in a culture that induces a lot of self-doubt, which we have gone through in the past talked about in the past, when the accompanying twin of self-doubt, self-doubt takes you into a feeling of, of self-competency, and uh, with just the right negativity within that self-competency or the sense of inadequacy that many of us feel, we start thinking of ourselves as a mistake. And that, as I will talk about shortly, leads to a sense of shame. Shame is a kind of self-attitude that we carry with us. Guilt, on the other hand, is a, a feeling or an emotional reaction towards a particular action that we did, towards some event that occurred. We have an emotional response to it called guilt. Shame is different. Shame is a sense of embodied image in ourselves, the assumption of me that we carry with us. And now, if we look at the transgressions we all make in the course of even a single day, we'll feel a, a sense of remorse. And if we have hurt ourselves or if we've hurt another people, just in the course of seeing and opening our hearts, we're going to feel the pain that we cause the world as well as the pain that the world causes us. We're going to feel it more intimately as we feel as we are more connected to it. And when we perhaps uh, by chance 
create pain for another. We see the effect and there's a natural feeling of remorse. Oh, I did this. I did this. It was a mistake or wasn't intentional perhaps, but I did it. The first thing that happens though is the complete honesty and straightforwardness that says I did it. There's no shelter taken here, no bunker mentality, no defense that comes up and says, let me try to wiggle my way out of this. Let me tell a lie. Let me get out of this situation. It's a simple matter of seeing, realizing, feeling the impact and, oh, I did this. And there, the emotional residue of that admission is remorse. Now, remorse is very different than shame. Remorse doesn't hold a story associated with it. It doesn't coalesce into a narrative, into a central image of oneself. It doesn't stabilize in terms of particular formation of me. It's just feeling the action taken, the transgression made, and the impact that occurred, and the feeling that, oh, pain occurred. Now, you, let me just, okay, so I've talked about that. Now I'm going to talk about something in the middle, and I'll bring them two together. Uh, when uh, we have in our hearts the uh, intention to grow, which all of you must have, or I have no idea why you would come. That sense that above anything else, I want to grow. That's the only motivation we need. That's the motivation that will drive us forward and correct transgressions we make. It's just that sense of, you just don't want to hurt anyone again. Look from a different angle, the need to grow is also the need to re resolve the issues of pain and suffering in the world and myself. And so it's, it's self-motivating. It can't be induced by another. It can't be encouraged by another. It has to come uh, when under a certain maturity level, there's just a willingness to look at one's mistakes and grow from them. Now that's all that's necessary whenever we make a mistake. Because most of the mistakes we make, because we are genuinely growing in a heart that doesn't want to hurt, are going to be unintentional areas that we create pain. There's pain is still going to be caused, but they're going to be unintentional. We're going to say the wrong thing, which I do all the time, or we're going to act a little way that's misinterpreted, or something's going to happen. And then, after perhaps a, a moment or two of justifiable self-reaction, we say, okay, what happened? Let's talk about this. I want to know what's going on. We learn. The heart takes it in. The lessons learned, we move on. It does not form itself around an image. It doesn't crystallize out in terms of some guilt factor, a historical thing that I have to drag through my whole life, tethered to. It's just simply, okay, I got it. And then it's released. Now, we think we need to rub our face in those feelings to make sure we get the point. And many of us don't think that's enough punishment for us, right? And so we just grind over and over again 
how awful we were, what occurred, and how we, how could I have, whatever made me, all this sort of exaggerated, we give it exaggerated significance. Because we think, as a sense of self, that's what we think motivates us to move beyond our transgression. It does just the opposite. And until and unless we learn this fact, we'll be forever encouraging the wrong forces of mind forward to learn how to grow. This sense of growth is not something that's even under your command. You already have it or you don't. But because you're here, I assume you do. And you don't need to, to rub your face in the situation over and over again. Just expose yourself to the truth of what you did. That's all. Don't pretend you did something that you didn't do. Just look at it and own it, own to the fact. And learn it no matter what. And because of some tragedy happened in occurrence to that, and, but there was no intention, or maybe there was, but still you learn from it either way, you just move on. But it's this need that we think of as, as having to do penance for our wrongs. You know, having to keep... It's, it is partially carried by the sense of unworthiness that we feel. I want, we think that we can somehow breathe a sense of worthiness into our psyche by doing penance, by making it so laboriously hard that somehow we're, we will grow in our sense of worthiness uh, through the pain of, of the uh, punishment. In fact, that's how most of us approach meditation, as penance. <laughs> we make it far harder than it is. Far harder than it need to be. Because we don't think we're worthy of the holy or the ideal. We hold this ideal out as some sort of God and then we're, how can I, me, the miserable me, ever approach that? And so it must be only through hard labor and sacrifice and all of which, which actually counters the wise direction that the meditation seeks. So this, this sense of how growth occurs and a wise orientation to transgressions and harm that we have caused is essential if we're going to move beyond shame and guilt. Shame and guilt, as I mentioned, are very entrapped forms of being. They're what most of us, to show and prove that we are as bad as we think we are, we can prove it by the list of guilty acts that we have created, starting with day six, when I was age six, seven, eight, we can just list a whole number of them, can't we? And we carry those with us as kind of proof that we deserve to be the unworthy person we believe we are. How are we ever going to grow beyond that when we carry the very proof of the assumptions that we're seeking to transcend? To the sense of me, I can't ever, trans I can't ever trans uh, uh, transcend that. 
because the proof is always waiting for me. All I have to do is turn around and look at what I've done, and of course I'm miserable and will be miserable. Of course this has to do with everything that I've done in the past. So let me just share one with you, okay? So I was a social worker in a school system uh, many 40 years ago or more. And uh, it was Christmas time. It was a junior, I was uh, the school social worker for an entire school system, but, uh, and it was the day that we were out or going to be let out for uh, uh, Christmas vacation, something like the 18th of December or something like that. It's this young 12-year-old boy comes to me and he says, can he, he asks if he could see me. He seemed pretty despairing. And I really didn't have time. I had a full day schedule. And I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm full today, but I'll tell you what, we'll make an appointment for right after Christmas. So whatever the after Christmas date was, 1st of January sometime, we set a date. So we go home. and, and to, and when he left, I thought, oh, you know, I should have spent more time with him. He was really pretty despairing. But I said, you know, okay, so I'll see him as soon as I get back. So when Christmas vacation happens, the young man hangs himself during the Christmas vacation. So I come back to the news that this 12-year-old boy hanged himself in the course of that time. And then I, and I look at that. This is pre-Dharma days. And I just, I just fell into a kind of despair because I realized at the time if I had gone with my intuitive sense, I would have spent some time with him because I felt that there was a, a problem there that needed immediate in attention, but I didn't do it. So you live with that. You live with that day, you know, as the days and weeks unfold of long time I tried to rationalize what I had done, you know, as Christmas vacation. And there's a lot of, you can, mind can shuffle the deck in any way it wants to. And it can shuffle it to your advantage or it can shuffle it to your disadvantage. But at one point I just said, you know, let me just look at this thing. And it's like going to uh, the, this, looking at the, uh, the hottest part of a fire, the white where it's white and intense and even hurts the eyes to see it. And you sit there and you just, in memory, you bring that up. And you just let the fire, you don't excuse it. You don't pretend it didn't happen. But there's so much guilt associated with it, so much wrong uh, action, unwise, you know, action. Just, and over time, you live with it. You, and, it and the reactivity pattern and the shame and guilt associated with it begins to dissipate. The fact still is there in my memory, but the reactive forces that create and, and con consolidate that, uh, that lack of ideal action on my part begins to just bring in a humanity component, a human being, unintentional human being response overworked, or whatever it was in that day, that's it. And you move forward. And that's 
what you do. You learn from it. Oh, I've got to catch that. What if I see that again in someone? I have that sense in me. Okay, I'm going to going to act differently. So there's learning. There's no hiding from that. That's what you want out of it. But there's a moving on now. And there's no longer a turning back and saying, God, when I was this age, early 20s, I should have. You know, let me tell you how awful I... You just move forward. And the guilt is absent. Now, if you can't do that, and guilt begins to pile up in terms of numbers, guilty about this, guilty about that, guilty about something else, then all of those actions in which we have a negative, that have had a negative impact upon how we view ourselves, begins to, uh, the continuum of all that begins to present the storyline, the attitude of shame. Shame is a feeling within oneself. You get out of bed in the morning with it. It's as if you feel like you're a a walking mistake, as if you should be hidden, that you're unseen, that, that, that you want to be unseen because if somebody really saw you, it would be so... The, you, they would see who you really were. And this tremendous sense of, of being hidden or uninspired, kind of a carrying, uh, and, and you get, it's like everything is uphill. Like we start the day, every, and you're at, you're at the low end of the slope. And you, trying to prove one's uh, validity uh, over and over again. Just that you have the right to live is the whole, your whole life becomes trying to essentially overcome yourself. That's how bad it can be. And the isolation and the despair and the separation that comes from that. I have, I, have, I have done something wrong because I, I, am something, I am something wrong. And there's a continuous compensation that many of us try to play out. If you feel like a mistake, you're going to be defended very strongly when you're attacked. Because if somebody questions you or, or attacks you, it's going to expose that sense of being a mistake and your defenses are going to go up very strongly. So someone who carries a lot of shame is a well-defended person. Very strong sense of, of, uh, of, of self-protection and unwilling to look at the emotion that's at hand or the situation that's occurring. And so, therefore, the emotional regression, there's no emotional intelligence, there's no emotional maturation that's occurring because the shame keeps us from looking at the emotional side of life because we're so ashamed of ourselves. 
and so defended within that shame, in that within that shame. Apologi they're apologizing continually, even when it's not one's fault. Someone who is of carries that sense of shame, even if something happens external to oneself, somehow the mind makes it their fault. Hmm? I should have done this. What, what's the matter with me? Why couldn't I have stopped that or prevented that? One that's very obvious, if any of you have ever experienced this from a family or a significant other, suicide. Immediately, you're exposed on what you didn't do. If you have any tendency towards shame at all, why didn't I see this coming? Just as I re reported back on that 12-year-old boy. And that, that sense of apologizing inwardly continually for all the ways that we are feeling within ourselves. That sense of the needing to apologize, it, it makes us very susceptible to manipulation. Somebody who's not uh, ethical, has no sense of integrity, can play upon that uh, and move you around like a puppet. And do. The sense of perfectionism is another symptom of shame because unless we get it right from our own perspective, other people will see that object and thereby it will reflect the flaw that's in me that I'm trying to see. So the need to get it absolutely right and the tension associated with that. This, this is insanity. Now, this is a very tight cotton ball, but some of us carry it. And you can see what's required of us is to come out of this thing. Enough. It also makes us, we have a very strong sense of right or wrong when we have shame. Because we want to get everything perfect, we have, we, we side with a very defined sense of morality. And therefore, we're always in tension with ourselves because we're always transgressing the ideal. There's no way to live an idealistic life. And finally, another symptom of shame is a kind of fixed perspective that shame gives us. We want to hold on to something stable because we don't feel stable in ourselves. So everything has a kind of a fixed we try to fix everything and make everything stable and secure in our life so that we can hold on to it like we would hold on to a life raft or a life preserver. The other thing that happens in shame that we're not aware of is that we pass it on. It's contagious. And if we are parents holding shame, we can be sure that we're going to pass that on to our children. And how easy does the expression come up in us, shame on you? What a terrible thing to say to somebody. We believe in shame. 
If you've lived your life from it, you believe that that's the way to keep yourself in line. It's by shaming yourself into that. And even though if you look inside and you're falling apart, never mind. Shame is the only thing we know to keep life stabilized. And may I say that religions, the religions of the world, are very good at keeping us shameful and guilt-ridden. Very good at that. Because it keeps us needing them for salvation. Right? Like in uh, this tradition, we have the Jataka tales. Now, the Jataka tales at one level are just kind of like fairy tales that show, if you take them lightly, they can be light, but many people take them as a kind of an ideal way to be. There's one Jataka tale that is about the Buddha on top of a cliff and a starving lion, lion at the bottom of the cliff doesn't have any way out from the canyon that it's there and it's starving to death so the Buddha throws himself off the cliff for food for the lion. Now I can't do that. <laughs> and if that's said in some kind of idealistic way like oh wow that's the best generosity when am I ever going to you can see that it works against you completely. <laughs> Has nothing at all to do with anything. But sets you up for further shame. Often religions have confessionals. Confessionals can be helpful in alleviating shame, but they're often induced so that you can't find your way out of shame without having a third party or a second party there that can give you forgiveness. This is insanity. We give our own forgiveness here. Fully empowered. What requires us doing is to take a seat at the wedding that is not contracted. And to open this thing up. As soon as we're contracted, the whole energy is off on this system. And we are forever destined pursuing and encouraging the same formations of mind. This sense of forbidden behavior in us. We're so ashamed of what we have in us, you know, that's contracted around it. Oh, if you saw what was inside of me, I used to, I used to keep a little something on my desk. I remember if, if, if you could see what was inside of me, I can't even remember what it is now. It's been, <laughs> but it wasn't nice. <laughs> you, if you knew what was inside of me, you wouldn't want to know me or something like that. Because I felt that, you know, I felt that early on. I just felt the, the tremendous sense of uh, ill at ease, troubling sense of self, troubling sense of self. But you see, we get something out of shame. That's what keeps us bound to it. You don't do something that's that painful unless you get something out of it. You get a reward. What do you get? You get a moral compass for yourself. 
It's very exact. Do this, don't do that. You get a clear inward compass on whether you're worthy or not. A very defined sense of who you are in relationship to your actions. We love that. We love knowing exact place or coordinates on the map, emotional coordinates on the map. You get a confirmed sense of your unworthiness. It sounds awful, doesn't it? But see what's up against you when you take this thing on. Listen to the mind as it comes back at you, claiming its reference point and how awful you really are. And see how much, how willing you are to expose that emotional immaturity to the light of your awareness. It explains our suffering. Why? Because I deserve it. Of course that happened to me. Just a, you can see the spiral down. Explains our suffering, suffering. Why the world is against us. Why everything is happening to me. And we just keep picking up the pieces and claiming a further narrative to whatever the world is doing. We become very packaged in this thing. Very astute and accomplished in keeping ourselves miserable. We, when I was uh, in hospice care, we'd go over to somebody's house who was dying and had a lot of pain. And so we'd give them whatever medications they needed so that they wouldn't have to be in pain. But they wouldn't take those medicines. And we would try to sneak them, you know, like, eat this ice cream. <laughs> Get yourself out of pain. You don't have to be in pain. But when you dug below the surface, when you just scratched the surface to understand why the person want, refused the medication is that they wanted to be in pain. They felt it tempered their life of, of the pain they caused. So if they could cause or feel the pain deservingly now because of the pain they had caused in their life, that this, somehow that would allow retribution. I, there's nothing... You, you, I, when a, a mind turns like that into that kind of confirmation, it's helpless. There's no way in. It's locked out. It locks everything out. It's so sure of its intention, of its reason for being. There's also... Uh, arrogance within shame because it's like we believe that we're the cause of all the problems in life we believe that you know everything bad happens to us rightfully it's not that it sounds like that might be a course of humility where you would 
self-flagellate. But it's really arrogance to think the world revolves around you and that everything that happens to you is because of your bad sense of worth or your need or deserved need to be to do penance. This is crazy. This is a frozen, a frozen sense of ourselves in time. We're frozen. And we keep verifying why we are what we are from past, from the past conditioning, from what we have done. That certifies that the assumptions we hold about ourselves are true. We can turn around and show you the notes. We can show you the history books. We've done this. You see, that's why I feel deservedly this way. Now, just for a moment, show up here. Release the tether of that thinking. Just for this moment. And you can see how close everlasting life is to you. You can see how close it is. All we have to do is release those tethers. Simply don't believe in the story that keeps asserting the truth of that. We have to be willing to look at everything we've done. It's, there's no hiding here. There's no escape. Bring on the history. I don't give a damn. And from now, from here, everything is workable. Everything can be dealt with. But to carry this ongoing burden, it's like, you know, just the, the bag and the, and the heaviness of the burden just keeps getting more and more laborious. It's like the uh, Scrooge, Marley, Morley, Marley, whatever his name was, this, that had all these chains linked and, you know, just carrying that heavy. Uh. Denies malleability. It denies what we are. Totally. That's where emptiness comes in. That's where knowing what you are is the only way to offset this. That's why walking just the path of self-affection is not enough. Emptiness has to be brought in here. We have to see afresh and anew what this sense of self is, what this really is, not what we believe it to be. And to stop this image from constantly forming from the association of a narrative. Let me just put that narrative down. Let me write it down. Let me see what I'm saying to myself. Let me see the emotions that arise from what I'm saying to myself. Let me just put it down on the paper so I can see this stuff. Instead of making an unconscious assumption. And let me deal with this state of mind as a state of mind. Not as the assumption of the truth of me. Okay, I'm feeling shame. I'm just not going to move from it. Here it is. Let me feel it. Doesn't feel very good. Now, if we have a sense that meditation should make us feel good 
and I'm feeling shame, then we're going to think that our meditation is going astray. But if you understand that the way you feel good is to take everything on, nothing is astray. That the only way to, uh, for us to ultimately feel better is to not to move in relationship to anything. Okay. And not assume the associated assumptions that we have invested within that state of mind. It just opens the heart. You just begin to, okay, you know what? I'm not perfect. That may be the first unburdening that occur. you know I'm not perfect I'm doing the best I can you know I'm just doing the best I can here I had a of when I was a monk there was another Western monk who I, I didn't I didn't get along with and so but we kept showing up together <laughs> and and we would uh, we would be like billiard balls we'd hit and then we'd we go away. Neither of us liked each other, so we were. So I, I went to a kind of a remote area of Thailand, and then I wanted to take. I was offered a place to stay on even a smaller little island than the island I was on, where nobody lives on it. So I take my little boat, I take it across the mile to the shore, I get off the boat, and who's there facing me? <laughs> And I said to him, I said, you know, one of us has got to leave. <laughs> he said, you know, I'm here and I'm doing the best I can. And I just, my heart just opened to him. I got in my boat and went back. back <laughs> We're all doing the best we can here. We're all doing the best we can. You know, life is hard. Living is hard. It's hard to make sense of it, it's hard to orient ourselves to it, it's hard not to take it on as a burden, but that is what we have to do to stay alive, or else we die far sooner than our physical death. So this is the wedding party, and it's raining. Let's step out. Step right into it. Okay. Can we sit for a minute or two? Set, sit within life. Don't apply life to what's going on. Abide in life with what's going on. So there's no separation. There's no distance. Right in the middle of it. Emotional rawness. What would you want to remove? What isn't a part of your very liveness? You start tweaking it. You're dead unconscious. 
It's all or nothing. Okay, so if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. No, I, I don't, I'm not talking about a cathartic thing. Okay, so the question is, uh, when we feel shame, uh, do we just be with it lightly, or do I go down into it in a cathartic kind of thing, or what is it? How? What is it that I'm encouraging everyone to do? Uh, the first thing uh, is just to get comfortable with this uh, attitude we carry, and it doesn't. Sometimes it's just. It's just, it just feels awful. It just feels like I'm a mistake. Now, if you, I, I, I encourage this too. If you want to start writing, almost like a journal list, uh, as if you were reporting on what you're seeing and feeling in the nature of that, like you put, you're putting your ear right to the emotion and just listening to what it's saying very subtly and the, the different... Uh, energetic responses within that, just getting the kind of fle fleshing out the details of it, so that you're just you're just feeling it. You're just letting yourself be completely in it, without assuming. And this is the important point, And this is the difference between uh, psychotherapy and uh, spiritual work, I believe, is that you are not reaffirming. A new, a story, the old storyline, neither are we creating a new storyline. We're simply going in it as an adventure. We're just taking this ride, ride in uh, Disney World, through our shame. And ghosts are popping out and stuff, and memories are occurring. <laughs> and you just, whoa, whoa, this is amazing, whoa. It's like that. The catharsis is when you're starting to, you believe in the storyline and you're trying to get out or get rid of the story. We're not trying to get rid of anything here. We just want the details. We want to be a journalist to ourselves. We want to know what's in there. We want to know it not by trying to make it, demonize it, but by simply getting an understanding of what we're telling ourselves that holds us within this pattern of shame. I'm no good. I can't. I'm a mistake. I need to hide all of those different emotional feelings and narrative, uh, cognitive uh, sentences and thoughts that we're saying are part of the mixture of it all. If you're willing to flush it out at that level of detail, you'll come out of that ride, and then the next time you go into it, it won't scare you 
is what's it scare you? Maybe half as much? Or a quarter as much? How about the hundredth time you go through it? What's it look like in that Disney world? Oh, here comes the, I remember, watch over here in this part of the ocean. This, this is, <laughs> this pirate comes up from over here. Oh, it becomes a cosmic humor, doesn't it? How many of us are willing, you see, we're not trying to scream it out, because that's just embracing the story. That's just, you're making it conscious in some way, but being conscious is also being conscious of what you're saying to yourself that creates the reactivity at all. And is that thought true? Asking whether that thought is true or not. Just because I have served under it since I was seven doesn't make it true. Just because I've been a slave to it doesn't make me less equal to the master. Okay, enough of this thing. Is this thing true? But you can only ask that question and surmount it from now. You cannot do it historically. You can't, you can't, you have to have, you have to have your embodied life here so that you know that here so that the conditioning of the past is coming from the past into the present, not just circum circulating back into, it's like that knob on our car where you can let fresh air in or just circulate the old air. <laughs> if you look backward, you're circulating the old air. You keep it fresh. Fresh air comes right in. The past comes in, but it gets, goes right out the vents. Now is the salvation. Because now shows us we're not that. You can't get out of being that just by wanting to get out of it, by turning back and assuming all those things and trying to present another narrative that's kinder than that one and trying to work out and the details and rationalize the blame. And you know, you're, you're juggling 10,000 balls and you're, you don't get out of anything there. It just complicates the whole thing. But now frees you up from the whole thing. Because it's empty. You aren't going to ever see your emptiness experientially except now. So I, the other analogy I like is you're sitting at a cave, right? The bats are flying out and you're just right there at the mouth of the cave. Bats are just shooting out of the back of the cave. That's why emptiness and self-acceptance, they go hand in hand. This is not psychology. This isn't humanistic psychology. And neither is it philosophical emptiness, where it's all Maya, it's all, you know, it's all illusion. This is the vertex where those two meet. Fully embodied, fully now. That's when the past ends. Yes. So emptiness is when you set down the story. Emptiness, emptiness, she says, what is emptiness? 
So that's a very important question, but that's what most of my teaching is emphasized. It's looking at what the mind is and seeing if it is something. If, it's, if you're in there, then take yourself seriously. But if you're not in there, how seriously can you take yourself? So first find out if you're in there. And then take yourself as seriously as what you find. I'm serious. <laughs> if you don't find anything, don't think you just haven't looked in the right corner. Keep looking until you've looked in every corner. Because there isn't anything in there. It's just a mechanical process moving, moving on. In the present, when that meets the present, that's when the cotton ball is, now it's not even cotton anymore. It's the threads are so thin that it's just space. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's such that's such an, an astute point. It, it, it shame is you can see how it's culturally induced. And she says, well, what about body image? Body image also because we don't our bodies don't match the covers of Cosmopolitan magazine. No one does. I've never even seen anyone who did that. But we all feel shameful that somehow we're off-center, we're out of balance a little bit, that, we're, that there's something wrong with me, even though you look around, there's nobody like that in the room or any, I, can, I don't even see anybody like that. Still, oh, I don't have it together, you know. But it's all culturally, see, that's a cultural induction. We've, 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 we've taken on the culture, we've ingested the culture's ideal and the culture is meant to keep us moving in relationship to buying. That's the economic pressure that's on us. So what do I need to do? I need to buy a gym membership and I need to buy, you know, Slim Fest and get into Weight Washer, Watchers and, you know, and then it leads to, I don't know, anorexia? I don't know. You just keep going on that thing because you're never thin enough. Because your image never says you're thin enough. This is insanity. Everybody can hear the insanity in this. But how many of us are willing to step out of that insanity? This is insane, people. Now, that's, it's not I'm not angry at the culture for doing it. Nobody's doing it. We're doing it to ourselves. This is the agreed-upon message. We've all agreed will run by. It's mass hysteria. It's a collusion of consciousness. But what doesn't mean I have to take part in it when I see the insanity, that's it. Okay, enough for tonight. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.